We return to our chronological journey through the Bible as seen through the eyes of people and also through the eyes of God. How history is being lived out on the ground, we might say. How the people are responding to God's instruction and how God, whether gently or dramatically, deals with the issues of obedience or disobedience to his instruction. What we see is that up to and including chapter 11 these chapters they in a sense are the the first act of genesis chapter 12 shifts focus onto god's phase two we might call it this establishing his will and his purpose through one individual and one nation for now though god is letting the people and and therefore letting us see why he needed to take that route why he needed to go one individual into one nation. Quick overview then of Genesis chapter 9. Noah has exited the ark with his family. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 9 this incredible command. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This call to grow and to scatter, and it's a similar call to that which was given to Adam and Eve, of course. Then in verse 2 of chapter 9, there's this call again to stewardship of the earth that reiterates the first call given to humanity in a sense, but there's a, a twist offered in this stewardship and that we see in Genesis 9 verse 3, this expansion of humanity's diet. Now they're going to be eating the animals of the earth. So for those of us that really enjoy a steak or a burger, we're grateful, in a sense, for this shift. Then in chapter 9, verse 4, we see this call to obedience. Just like Adam and Eve were encouraged to live within a framework of God's um, God's teaching, God's guidance. Again, we see reiterated here in chapter 9, there's a call to obedience, not to fall into the pattern of Cain, not to take life, that every human life is precious. 9 verse 6 lays out the consequence of disobedience to that call, that if you deliberately take a life, then your life is forfeit. Genesis 9 verse 9, we see the covenant is established. This is an incredible thing. When we actually stop and think about this, God, the God of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth, would willingly make a covenant with humanity. And this is a one-way promise of God. We know that God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. We know that from the word. So what's just happened, in a sense, with the flood was the final straw broken moment 
And we see in this, in this covenant that is a one-way promise, God reveals his character once again, that he is patient, giving people every opportunity to choose obedience over disobedience. The, the sense or the picture we get here is this, this is, the earth is God's house and humanity are guests in his house. So the, the invitation, the challenge to live aware of that truth, but in full knowledge that the owner of the house, this parent is patient, forgiving, wanting only the best for his children. We've spoken quite a bit about chapter 9 in recent uh, times at Open Baptist Church, so we're going to move on from there and quickly touch on chapter 10. Chapter 10 is quite often labelled the table of nations. And this is one of these Marmite chapters uh, in the Bible. Some love these chapters, these genealogies, and I know that some don't. Some, though, find it fascinating to see how the people spread north, south, east and west and settled in various regions. They established communities that would then go on to become empires, nations and empires. And what we see in chapter 10 is that people generally responded obediently to God's call to be fruitful, multiply over the earth, that is to scatter, to build communities and, and, and in that regard, build communities as God would intend. But we also see that some appear to have intentionally, willfully opted to operate in defiance of God's instruction. We see this hinted in Genesis 10 verses 8 to 12. We have an individual here who is named Nimrod. Let me read this. It says here that Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and resin between Nineveh and the great city Kala. So you have this picture painted of this individual who stands out, who is distinct, who is different. The Bible says he's a mighty man, a powerful hunter. Lots of conjecture out there about what these terms mean. So about what kind of hunter he was. Was he a hunter of, of animals? Was he a hunter of people? And another question for conjecture is, what kind of man was he? The man in inverted commas, because some propose that actually, if you hold the angel theory to Genesis 6, that maybe he wasn't actually fully just a man, that there was something else going on there, some kind of um, fallen angelic influence in Nimrod. Now, rather than get bogged down in all of that conjecture, it's interesting and it's definitely worthy of study at some point. Uh, we let the plain truths come to the fore in this text. Nimrod, simply put, isn't a man in pursuit of God's will. He's not a man after God's own heart. We could say he's a man in pursuit of his own will, following after the desires of his own heart. And, and this plays out in the activity of his life. 
as he establishes a number of communities after his own image. So that's where we're going to rest this morning as we look at the Word of God. We're going to read uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, and then we're going to look at the, the two main themes that we can draw from this chapter. This idea of unity without God and God's loving intervention. So two main themes, unity without God and God's loving intervention. We're also going to touch upon the fact that God's loving intervention can sometimes take the form that we don't expect, like a great disruption or a great shaking. So Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through to 9. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So there we go. So that gives us an indication of of what's happening in this moment. Not a lot of detail. Doesn't tell us the timescale as well of how long it took for this to unfold. But again, a snapshot into what's happening on the earth. We're settling today in the biblical location of Shinar, And and whilst there's much debate over the specifics of this, the consensus is that we're in a region that would become known as Babylonia, neighbouring Assyria, recorded here, uh, depending on your translation, as as Babel or uh, Babylon. Many would uh, argue that this is the same location as we would understand later as the city of, of Babylon. This is the benefit, uh, when we look at this, of, of living well after the event, of being able to draw in millennia of history to see what unfolded from the origins of this moment in Genesis 11. We don't have much detail here, but what we do see is what unfolded from the ideology of this time and this area. We see this vision of Nimrod and the people of Babel or Babel uh, played out time and again throughout history across multiple places. And we understand why God did what he did in this moment when we look at how this ideology of Nimrod, this vision of Nimrod played out. It's incredible, I think, to imagine that that after the flood there were only eight people alive on the earth. Again, this depends on how you view how you view the the flood narrative. But but if we take it 
that the flood covered the whole earth and that everyone was lost apart from the eight on the ark, then there's only eight people alive on the earth. And therefore, it's not incredible to imagine the possibility that everyone had the same language. Of course, when we look back on last week's Resurrection Sunday and the fact that I mentioned that one of the key reasons God came to earth in Christ was because there was a return to a common language. The gospel could now go out to the ends of the known world. It could go easily because of this common language. And and so common language is a great thing when it's used for the right purpose. How many of us have have travelled abroad and have struggled to do even the most basic things because of a language barrier? I've seen there's been a spate of, uh, of recent TV shows in which people have been challenged to traverse the world, racing against other people. And the consistent problem they face is a language barrier. Why does a common language matter so much? Why is it such a big deal? Because when you've got a common language, you can get your point across easily. You can achieve a lot very quickly and very efficiently. You can get done what you want and what you need to get done without any fuss or or bother. But what if there isn't a common language? What, What impact does that reality have? Well, it causes everything to slow down, every fine detail, every little detail to be an enormous effort. It forces people to have to condense and to distill their thoughts, to really think through what they're wanting to achieve. Not to operate so much on impulse, but rather to become incredibly deliberate, methodical, patient, understanding of other parties in the conversation. It forces people to listen. And it makes it incredibly hard for a Nimrod to share his vision with the masses. In a sense, you can begin to see the genius of what God does in this moment. To to a people who had a desire to make a name for themselves, to make themselves the centre of life. This intervention of God was disastrous for them. Now, when we boil it down, the project of Nimrod is a project, uh, is the same project of the serpent in the garden. It's the pursuit of self under the guise of unity without God. It's the pursuit of self under the guise of unity but without God. It's the construction of community dominated by the strongest personalities or the loudest voices. Those who have elevated themselves up to be the authority on all matters. Or even, as many would argue, in in Babel, in, in this place where Nimrod is, or to create God's in their own image, to create God by their own definition rather than let the God of heaven define himself and therefore define them and their purpose. As a Baptist church, as a Baptist family, we understand that Jesus Christ is the sole and absolute authority. 
in all matters pertaining to, to faith and that we understand Jesus Christ through the word of God. But for the people of of Babel, of, of, of Babel, the sole and absolute authority was a flawed and self-centered individual. Yes, he, he was mighty, he was strong, and by some measurements he was successful. He would probably have been very charismatic. It reminds us that even the very best the world can offer is nothing in comparison to what comes from heaven. We've heard it said that God loves us too much to leave us where we are. Again, to push back on this notion that God loves everyone unconditionally. That the Bible time and time again shows us that, yes, God loves everyone, for God loved the world. And in what way did he love the world? Well, he came to earth and he, he made a way for us to be restored to him through the cross. God loves the world, but it is that this love that compels him to want us to respond to his gospel and therefore be changed. And it's the same, what's happening here is the same in the sense, because even in the midst of their pride and their pursuit of their own way, God lovingly intervenes. God lovingly intervenes to try and change and transform what is unfolding. And, you know, some might push back on that notion, especially in today's culture, because God's intervention here actually disrupts their progress. God's intervention here disrupts their progress. He throws them out of their equilibrium. Um, it's a divine disruption, like we've been mentioning uh, over the past year, where heaven shakes earth to stop humanity from totally destroying itself. People push back on this notion today that God has the right to intervene and to redefine. God intervenes here and, and his intervention isn't seen as a blessing by those who are living in, in Babel. It's not the kind of intervention they would have voted for. Had there been discussions in advance of God coming down, the people would have most likely cried out against the perceived injustice of it, pushed back against the idea that anyone should try and tell them that they can't live the way they want to live. But you see, they've forgotten. They've forgotten their living in God's house. They've forgotten that the good father knows what is best for his children. Every parent that's had, uh, well, every parent that's had kids, I was going to say, but of course, if you're a parent, you've had kids. Every parent has had these kinds of conversations with their children where they understand the larger ramifications of their children's poor choices and therefore, as a parent, they intervene. Here you have, uh, in, in Babel, you have what we see, in a sense today, in our contemporary culture. People operating out of impulse. People operating, operating out of impatience. Out of a self-seeking desire. These people didn't have the time or desire to work hand in hand with those that they could not communicate freely with. It tells us that they dispersed throughout the earth. They were scattered 
just as God had told them to do in the first place. God's intervention. It's, it, his intervention here is, is holy and is good for humanity's own good. And so the common purpose of the people was lost and the common will to to congregate, to self-elevate and to dominate was diluted. This kingdom of, of man seen in the desire to pursue their own will and build unity without God was for a time hampered. So what? What does this have to do with us thousands of years later? Well, if we consider the development of humanity over those years, we see this pattern is repeated time and time again. And and more importantly, the heart condition, the motivation behind this pattern is revealed time and time again. Now, we, we read in Revelation, of course, last year that this very issue pioneered in this very chapter of Genesis will be one of the most significant problems in the end of days and that God will once and for all put an end to it. But but so what? Why is it relevant to us today? Well it's relevant to us because it's still happening and, and we might unwittingly be supporting it through our, our lifestyles and our choices. The purpose of the revealed will of God found in the Word of God is to teach us about the character and nature of God. It's to teach us about how he has intervened throughout history. But also, and this is where it's key for us just now, to guide us as to how we might live today in a way that pleases him and furthers his kingdom. Nimrod was not living with that mindset of how can I please God and further God's kingdom. Nimrod's uh, philosophy and vision that was embraced by the people was how can I please myself and further my kingdom. And so it's great for us as we look at the word and we weigh the word against, uh, yes, history, but also against contemporary life. I believe God calls us to evaluate our our lives, to examine where our allegiances lie, to identify where the spirit of the kingdom of the serpent is at work. Now we see that in the Tower of of Babel, of Babel. Uh, We see that, that kingdom of the serpent at work there and we examine where it might be taking root in our in our lives, in our communities and in our nation. Is my community built upon the pursuit uh, and success uh, and of unity without God? Is it built upon that kind of pursuit? Most likely it is built on a, a pursuit of success and unity without God. Is my nation built upon a pursuit of success and of unity without God? Ultimately, yes, our, our nations often are built on the pursuit of success and of unity without God. And and so what can we do about that? Because there's only really, I would argue, one solution. And that is that the kingdom of the world needs to be influenced and ultimately replaced, superseded by the kingdom of, of heaven. 
And that sounds like a grand mission. That is ultimately the mission of the church. And, and so how do we live out that mission? Well, we go to Matthew 28, of course, and we say that we have to take the gospel out to the nations. We baptise in the name of Christ and we disciple people. But what, what can we do? What can we do in practical terms to resolve this challenge? We might think that the battleground for this uh, this kingdom of, of the world versus the kingdom of heaven, this battleground might be found in community council and in parliament. It might be in the voting booth or in the head offices of, of organisations of power. But I would propose that God actually has a different strategy and a better strategy, a more lasting strategy which will influence households and therefore generations to come. And it involves the transformation of the heart of every individual, born again through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We think about Jesus' dialogue in John 3 with Nicodemus, this incredible conversation between a man who is pursuing truth and the man who is truth. John chapter 3, in a sense you could argue that, that the religion of the time, that the Jewish established uh, religious authority, that they were in a sense an organisation that was pursuing their own will rather than the will of God. And here you have Nicodemus who's a Pharisee coming to Jesus and he asks this incredible question. He, 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 he reaches out and desires to know how it is that we can come to know the truth. Jesus says, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. This transformation that comes through an encounter with Christ through repentance and faith. And so, if we think about it this way, every heart in our community transformed through the power of Christ, that is how the kingdom of the world is translated, transformed into the kingdom of, of heaven on earth. And the only way for that to happen is for us to be in amongst those beyond the church. We have to be willing to bring Jesus into that space. To bring Jesus into that space and, and lead them to the cross. And ultimately, stand with them, walk with them beyond the cross into new life. When we look at the world around us, it's not hard to see the parallels between what happened in, in Babel, in, in Babylonia, in Babylon, I, and, and to see the parallels with our contemporary culture. People thinking that, that they don't need God, that they can pursue life and success, and even unity without God. But ultimately, God is at the heart of everything that is good. And if you remove God from that, what are you left with? Nothing of eternal substance for sure. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for the time in your word and we thank you that your word records for us history and teaches us how to live. Father, I pray that you would help us to evaluate our own lives, evaluate our own communities and our own nations, to evaluate them and to see where the kingdom of the serpent is at work and where the kingdom of God is at work and help us to be a resource for the furtherance of your kingdom, Father, that more may come to know you, that more may proclaim the the goodness and grace and mercy of God found in Jesus Christ so that your name would be glorified, God, your kingdom expanded, people taken out of the clutches of hell into eternal life in heaven with you. Father, we ask for your help by the power of your spirit in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you.